And uh, it's hard because you're preparing to want to preach Good Friday, and then you're in the midst of preaching, or you're preparing for Easter. So it's this tension of wanting to share most definitely what Christ did on the cross, but then you're looking forward to Sunday. Um, Sunday is coming. I read this week of Polly Toynbee, a well-known opinion columnist in Great Britain. Years ago, she reviewed the, the movie that had just come out, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in the article, which was so subtly titled, Narnia represents everything that is most hateful about religion, she would say, of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. And then she added the question, did we ask him to? There are many today that have the same response as Paul. They don't care about the cross. They don't care about Jesus. They, they don't care about the significance of Easter, the resurrection. There are many that don't want to talk about this, uh, the doctrine that is connected to this. Some churches even have left the discussion, forgotten the purpose and the event of the cross of Jesus Christ. Some pastors and churches have left this, uh, the idea of uh, penal substitution, that's what it is. That's what we say when Jesus died on the cross for us, for our sins. It's called penal substitution. It's a penalty that's due for us, for our transgression. It's, it's paid by a substitute, namely Jesus Christ. And some have called it a, a vile doctrine, making God a vengeful God in the name of justice when they've left the church deeply wounded and, and lost. What do we say, though? How do we answer these questions about the cross of Christ? Is the doctrine of penal substitution, the teaching that Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sins in our place, really a vile doctrine? Romans 4.25 says this about Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And we live, I hope you recognize this, we live among people that do not believe that Jesus died for their sins. And they are not clinging for Christ and salvation. To them, today is just another Friday. They may see that it's called Good Friday in the calendar, but it's no effect on their lives. But for us, we, we, we gather this evening to remember what Christ suffered on that night over 2,000 years ago. We gather to remember that Jesus was killed. And that's the most basic fact of all. It is most needed for us to understand that this evening. For a few moments this evening, maybe longer than a few moments, we're going to look at Matthew 27. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 27. If you don't have one, there's one provided there in the seats. We're going to look at verses 32 through 54. We're going to kind of walk through the passage, stopping at a few points along the way. <clears throat> I most definitely will not cover every detail. I'll leave that to you in your study, or you can talk to Pastor Ryan Wood afterwards. He'll fill in all the details for you. There's a few things, though, I want to draw to your attention as we look at this and we consider the cross tonight. As you're turning, I'll just continue. Jesus wasn't only killed. We need to be reminded that Jesus was killed in a violent way. It was by crucifixion. For the first century Jew to be hanged on a cross was to be cursed by God, as Deuteronomy 21 says. Crucifixion was a severe punishment. There was 
great suffering for those who, who would die on a cross, and yet there was even more, it seems, for Jesus as we read. Incredible bleeding. He was scourged so severely before he was crucified. So, so much so he couldn't carry his crossbeam. Matthew 27, 32 says, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And Jesus had open wounds on his back and his chest. It was gruesome to consider, and even more so for those first century Jews who had actually seen it happen. They, they knew what crucifixion was. Of all the, the punishments in ancient Mediterranean world, crucifixion was especially detested. Now, the fact that our Savior, our hero, was crucified was not glamorous by any means. The only reason that this is included in all the gospel accounts is because it's true. Jesus Christ was killed. He was crucified. And this was a, a horrific way to die and a horrific way to kill someone. It was reserved for those whose crimes the state most wanted to discourage. Which makes Pilate and what he says to the officials even more bothersome. Matthew 27, 22, and 23, Pilate said to them, Then what shall we do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. We really can't, and we won't tonight, describe all the foolishness that happened in the, the handling of Jesus. How, how, how could so many lies be told in one trial? How, how could so much sin be poured into one courtroom? And, and Pilate, here's Pilate, washing away centuries of Roman justice in a matter of moments with his fingers in a bowl. Jesus would be crucified, put there for a purpose, next to two thieves. And as you read the account of the crucifixion over and over, it makes what Jesus says earlier in the Gospels even more amazing to us. I'm sure you can recall what Jesus said about the cross, Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. What are you saying, Jesus? The cross was not a religious symbol then, but a word you're never to use in polite company. I know we have it on jewelry and T-shirts and on a wall behind me. But then, during that time, the cross was scandalous. And you try to put yourself in the position of those hearing this. Do we see the awfulness of the cross? One author says this to try to put us in a position to understand. He says, imagine a teacher saying to people in the Jim Crow South, if you want to follow me, put on your noose and follow me. And what a shocking and offensive thing to say. Who, who would follow a person who says something like that? This is why Jesus says what he says. It's, it's to cause people to consider their lives. Who, who are they following? It's to show them the extreme humiliation, the shame, and the torture. This was to show them what Jesus would experience for their salvation. This was how Jesus was to be killed. Matthew says to us in 27:33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull... They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. This appears to be a reference to a custom that's mentioned in the Talmud when, when there's led out to an execution, they're to be given a goblet of wine containing grain of 
frankincense in order to numb their senses, and, and Jesus refuses to drink it. Why? It might seem to me that he wanted to keep his senses clear. He, he, he wanted to be sincere in his mind for this moment of sacrifice, for his, his time to give his life as a ransom for his bride. In verse 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Matthew passes over the excruciating details of Jesus' death for a moment. He, he wants his readers to focus on the fact that Jesus is suffering for sin. His death primarily should be remembered for that. And Jesus' crime there is listed over him. His crime is that he was king of the Jews. In verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Matthew says that people are just walking by and they join in to mock with the crowd. They're not even purposely there, Matthew says. They're just, they're just the peer pressure of it all. And, and they gladly echo what is being said about Jesus. Verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself, he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and he, we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God, and the robbers who were with, crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This, this is seen, Matthew's showing us, this is the complete rejection of Jesus by the officials. It's, it's surprising that people of power and position at this point were even present at the crucifixion. And, and the fact that they were there is an indication of the depth of their hostility and revenge towards Jesus. And in so doing, they're witnesses of the greatest saving act in all of history. Nonetheless, they take the leading part in the events that brought it about. They're, they're quite unaware of the significance of what's happening. But don't miss this. Matthew seems once more to be mocking the mockers. Verse 45. Now this, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This last section, there's three words here at where I want to camp for the rest of our time. Three words that I want to leave you with this evening. And I've been praying that these, these thoughts that I'll leave you would carry with you for this evening and for tomorrow. We, we gather tonight as a, as a church, as a family, and we're here together, but we, I really want you to individually think deeply on these truths. I want you to 
to hide them in your hearts and minds and contemplate them. And we're, we're not planning on having any type of fellowship following our time here. I don't want to be a Scrooge and say you can't fellowship. I'm not saying that at all. But feel free after our time to meditate on Maybe just leave and even spend Saturday thinking through this again with the purpose and the goal of coming back Sunday to see Jesus defeat it all. The first word that I want to camp on for a moment, Matthew says, is about the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And, and the word I want you to focus and look at is the word cry. It could be translated scream or even shriek. Jesus is screaming out to the Father, You've abandoned me. You left me. You're gone. It's a cry of spiritual anguish. It's not to say he didn't suffer physically. Most definitely he did. He's crying out, though, in spiritual grief over the separation that he's experiencing from the Father. Martin Luther speaks of this. He says, our, our most merciful Father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law so that we could never be delivered from it by our own power, sent His only Son into the world and laid upon Him all the sins of all men, saying, you will, you'll be Peter, that denier. Paul, that persecutor. The blasphemer, the, the cruel oppressor. David, the adultery. The, the sinner who ate the apple in the paradise, the thief, the thief who hung on the cross next to him. And briefly, you'll be the person who has committed the sins of all men. And see, therefore, that you pay and satisfy for all of them. Johnny Erickson Tata writes of this also. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, Hated, lied, you have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk you who molest children, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections and format revolutions and torture animals and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? The Father watches as his heart's treasure, the mere image of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in one single direction. 
We need to rightly recognize this evening that Jesus didn't just suffer physically. No, he took our sins upon himself. And he cries out. And what does he cry? That's the second word I want you to make note of. Why? Why? Why, why did God forsake Jesus? Why did he abandon the cross? To understand this, we have to look at the word and we, we have to look at what Jesus says here. I believe on the cross, Jesus is actually praying the Bible. He's quoting Psalm 22. He knew exactly what was going on. It's a Psalm of David, one of the most shocking and puzzling Psalms until this point. It's shocking and puzzling because there's definitely hard times in David's life when his son dies as a result of his sin. He writes Psalm 51. There, there are trying times in David's life and he writes multiple times. But, but when did Psalm 22 ever happen to David? Listen as I read parts of Psalm 22 to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Strong bulls encircle me. Roaring lions open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. You lay me in the dust of death. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. When did this ever happen to David? Anyone ever pierced his hands and his feet? When were these people who surrounded him? I mean, David most definitely suffered. He, he was chased. He was threatened. He had spears thrown at him. He might have felt like these things happening to him, but do you know what he's describing? He's describing an execution, but it's not his own. And David is pointing to someone other than himself. There's no other way to understand it. You have to see the Bible as one book. One story. Jesus is crying out on the cross and he's quoting this psalm. And he's saying for all of us to hear, by God the Holy Spirit, David is pointing to me. I am being executed. Judgment is coming down on me. Jesus is being killed on the cross. Killed for our sins. And you will only come to grips with this or understand why God forsook Jesus when you understand and agree that all human beings stand guilty before God and deserve his judgment and his punishment. And unless you understand God's wrath towards sin, you won't understand why God forsook Jesus. Now, how do you respond? Seems to be two types of bad reactions. I'm sure there's more. Two that I thought of this week. First, there are people like us, people living in the Northwest, who reject the notion that they should ever feel guilty. All their lives were told that we shouldn't let people make us feel guilty. Guilt is a bad thing. You have to decide what's right and wrong for yourself, and you shouldn't let anyone make you feel guilty. You live the way you want to live. You believe what you want to believe. And don't you dare let anyone make you feel guilty. They don't know what you're talking about. They don't know what they're saying. That's one type. The, Secondly, there's the other pockets, the smaller ones, even churches, dare I say, that their motivation for living the Christian life is guilt. All they feel is guilt. 
people sit in my office or call me on the phone just racked with guilt, only moved by guilt and controlled by guilt, and they control others by guilt, just racked with guilt. Now, if you say nothing should make me feel guilty, I have to decide what is right and wrong for me. What you're saying is that there is nothing more important than you and your feelings and your, and your needs. And that's all that matters. There's nothing more important than you. There's nothing that you have to sacrifice for or serve or to make you feel guilty. Nothing transcends you. You are ultimate now. In other words, if there's no godly guilt, there's no hope. Because you have nothing left to live for, nothing to die for. And yet the other group feels guilt, but for the wrong reason. They, they use guilt as a way of making themselves feel accepted. If, if I just feel guilty enough, and, and I can finally then feel accepted, even just for a moment. And guilt is just a tool to get what they want, the acceptance and freedom. And, and they never get it. And there's no hope in that either. Because as soon as they feel good about themselves, they're, they're wrecked again by their failures. And it's a, this wicked circle that has no end. But friends, the Bible says there is truth, there is right, there is hope, and there is guilt, a godly sorrow. There is something more than you. It's God. And the Bible also says that God created you to be perfect, to, to live in perfect obedience to Him. And you don't measure up. You're supposed to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And you can't do it. And when you realize that, when you realize what the Bible teaches, that you stand guilty, it's a good thing. It's a good guilt. Why? Because you see the answer is not in yourself. It's only found in the cross. And what Jesus did for you. And finally, there's hope for that guilt. Well, the third word and the last word I want you to notice is the word My. You see it there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he isn't drawn attention to his pain. My feet, my arms, my friends, my friends. It's not, not physical pain. It's not relational pain. So much beyond there. What is it? He's, he's losing something that he loves. And that is the deepest agonies that anyone can experience. It hurts if your child says they don't want you any longer or even a spouse it tears you up. It destroys something. And John, in his gospel, in chapter 118, says that Jesus has always been by God's side from all of eternity. It's one thing to be with someone for years, to develop a tight bond with another human being and have that ripped apart. But the Father and the Son have been wrapped in one another, not for 40, 50, 60 years, but for all of eternity. And this is what Jesus lost. This is why we hear him shriek. This is the cry from the cross. The love the Father and the Son had makes the greatest marriage in all of history look like a drop in the ocean. He's experiencing tremendous suffering, tremendous loss, so much that I, I cannot put enough adjectives out there to tell you. What was the punishment that Jesus experiences? God's Turning away from him, he was there with God from all of eternity. We're made. We're made to be in the presence of God like a flower is made to find their 
meaning and purpose before the Son. We're made for God. And Jesus takes our punishment for sin, and that means that he has the Father turn from him. He's taking that for us. What he was experiencing on the cross was like the zillions of eternal hells all encompassed and laid on him at once. He took all of our sins. He took all of our turning away to live our own way from God and to live selfishly. He takes that on himself. And Jesus Christ cries out, My God, my God. It was him. That's, that's the suffering. It's the intimacy that he'd always known, and it's gone. You know who's close to me when I say things like, my Katie, my Madeline, my Avery, my Charlotte, my Lucy. Even if you don't know me, you know that that's got to be Jeff's wife and kids. It's the only way I talk like that. And I'm talking about the intimacy, my intimacy with them, my relationship with them that supersedes any other relationship on earth. And here Jesus is saying, my God, I lost my God, my everything. And he gave it up for us. See, on Good Friday, Jesus was delivered over for our sins. He died to bring us salvation. Isaiah 53, 6, that Pastor Ryan read earlier, says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's us. That's, we are the sheep that have gone astray. We need to recognize this. The 17th century Dutch artist Rembrandt painted the raising the cross, the painting of the crucifixion. You know something interesting in that painting? He paints himself into the scene as one of the Roman soldiers. You know, it seems as though in the midst of it, he saw himself in that scene. It's significant. There's an old Negro spiritual written in 1926, and the words say, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there? Were you there? Friends, have you considered that you're a sinner? Do you think you have any sins? Have you done anything morally wrong? Is there any person that you've harmed? Any grudge that you've been harboring? Anything that you've done that right now you're thinking about? Anything that you know a good God would condemn? What do you do about your sins? They are undeniably yours. God knows the truth about you. What will you do with your sins? This Friday, today, is good because Jesus Christ has come to be your Savior. If you will turn from your life of sin and trust, you'll, you'll cling 
to him and believe that he's died for you. And until you see the cross as that which is something done by you, you will never appreciate that it was done for you. My Christian brothers and sisters that are here this evening, do you walk into this church every week with the burden, guilt, as if there's some way that you have to perform week in and week out in order for God to be sufficiently pleased with you to allow you to go on for another week? That's not the gospel. That's not good news. Feel like there's something that you must do or something that you must feel to get God's favor in your life? There isn't. There isn't anything you need to work on to get God's favor. God has done it all for you and Jesus Christ on the cross. And you need to rest in Him. Good Friday tells us that God provided a substitute to bear your sins on the cross. He bore the wrath of God for you. Instead of relying on guilt to get you through this next week, you need to remind yourself of what Christ has already done for you. And you need to run to the cross. This evening, we want to remember again what Christ has done. I'm going to ask now that Pastor Ryan would come up and lead us as we celebrate the communion table together. As the men come forward now, Ryan, would you come up and lead us?